Yeah, bad news, guys. It's the last time you're going to see that video. <laughs> if you're new here, glad you're here. I can tell because you're not clapping and you still are laughing at the end of that video. Uh, this is the fifth week in a row you've watched it. If you came on New Year's Eve you all, or Christmas Eve, you also saw Dancer six times of that video and you're tired of it. Now I wish we could play it every single week because I love it. I know it's a little ridiculous, particularly if you're brand new. You watch it the first time and you're probably really skeptical of this place. Like, oh, there's those motivational statements and it's just silly cheesiness and I love it, right? And every morning I wake up, Julie, and I'm like, hey baby, this is our day. And I'm like, motivation, determination. And she's so excited and so happy about it. She's like, I can't wait to get up. This is our day. No, nope, not at all. That's not how it works. In fact, she gets up before me most mornings. She does that for me. She goes, Josh, this is your day, right? No, none of that's the case. But I do really like the videos. I know they're old after a while, but I couldn't stop playing it. Um, and I do like the idea of possibility. And I think there's something really exciting about uh, dreaming and, you know, part of New Year's and, and here we are now in February and you're definitely suspicious of New Year's resolutions, but there's just that idea of what's possible, right? So, uh, great minds in the self-help world, TED Talks would tell you, you should spend some time at the end of December imagining all the possibilities of uh, 2020 and focusing, setting goals, all those kind of things, and, which is a lot of fun, a lot of fun, but here we are now into the month of February, some of you are already saying, uh, January was a really long year, right? Some of you have that experience already. And you are well past all the hopes and dreams you had for New Year's resolutions. You're still paying the gym membership. You still got the diet food in your pantry, right? But you're not getting up at the time you thought you would and it creates some kind of shame and all this kind of stuff. And it just seems silly to be here in February and go, okay, it's 2020. We may or may not have at least got figured out how to put it on the date at the top of the corner. But we still haven't achieved the things we thought we'd achieve, all those kind of things. And that's why I spend the last four weeks, no five weeks, not telling you not to ask the question, what do you think is possible this year? But a better question, you've heard it over and over again, is this question, what do you think God thinks is possible this year? And some of you, that's really exciting. Others of you are like, yeah, don't. Same thing I, I thought God thought was possible last year, nothing, right? And so there's a couple different camps in our room. Really glad you're all here. Some of you are really excited about the possibilities of what God could do. Some of you haven't had that great of experience in dreaming big and hoping that God would do really, really spectacular things, right? You thought maybe years in the past that God would heal your grandmother's cancer and it didn't. So you're just like, I'm not sure God can do the impossible. Maybe it's because you don't think God cares. Or maybe it's because you don't think God's capable. Or maybe it's because you don't think God's real. Which, really glad you're here. I'm happy to wrestle through this with you. Because here's what I tell you. Um, if you don't believe in this stuff, let me tell you about the people in this room who do. They believe that God could do great things. They, most of the time. They believe that God could do the impossible for the majority of the time. And yet, everybody in this room, at least, it, is at best, mildly suspicious of God and his capabilities. And so we've been trying to figure out, is there a way to break through that pattern? Like, can we actually be really confident in God and also really confident in what God could do through us? And also really confident in our ability to trust that always. Right? That's really hard for all of us. And so what we've been doing, if you're brand new here, we've been uh, studying this people group, real people group, a real nation in the Old Testament Real early on in the establishing of the nation, you, you recognize the name of the nation. It's a nation called Israel. What I love about this nation is their name literally means wrestling with God. So this is really, really cool because their nation is established as a group of people who wrestle with God. And if you're completely at, you know, not interested in the religious thing, don't know much about it, you go, well, that's not very good. You're not supposed to wrestle with God. And I would go, this is the, the nation that's doing it well during this time period, right? Because all the other nations, they weren't wrestling with God. They wanted nothing to do with God. 
And so if you're in the spot where you're going, oh, I'm kind of wrestling with God, that's a really good thing. I'd much rather you wrestle with God than just ignore Him or think He doesn't exist or not be interested in Him. And so just possibly today, would you, could you maybe consider that God really is real, that He really could do the impossible, and I believe this, okay? that He actually wants this to be your best year ever. Uh, there's a suspicion again. It's okay. You can hold on to it. That's fine. Or this, he wants this to be the, your best day, decade ever. Really? Really do think that. Okay? And so we've been trying to figure out what this nation think about it, how they work through it. Let me just tell you kind of the nation's pattern. And I think what you'll see when you see their pattern, you'll identify it. But hey, that's my pattern too. Even for the greatest of us who really are really good at this Christian thing. right? And so the way that it works, so if you don't know much about the nation, the nation um, was established through a, a family, right? So if you read Genesis 1 through 10, that's the very beginning of the Old Testament, you just see a bunch of broken people, a lot like us, who can't get their lives in order. And when things they thought would get good, they get bad, get good, get bad, they mistreat their family, they mistreat those around them, and it's just a mess, right? It's just a mess. And God keeps telling them that he's, he's a good God and going to do good things, but they keep wrecking that. Then in Genesis chapter 11, all that changes. All that changes, and God shows up to this guy named Abram, and he says, Abram, and you, I'm going to change your name. Uh, from Abram to Abraham and a lot of the reason God changed names is because he saw a much larger possibility for people's lives than they did so he goes hey Abram you want to be a father and you and Sarah can't even have any kids but I'm not, not your name means father Abram and you're not only going to be a father you're going to be a father of many so he changed his name to Abraham which is not daddy instead it's big daddy that's literally how it's translated right and so you're going to be a big daddy and he says look up at the sky see all those stars look at the possibilities all those stars in the sky, Abraham, your offspring, your descendants are going to be greater than that. And here's the crazy thing, Abraham. I am going to bless you and I'm going to bless all them so that you'll be a blessing to other people. No, I'm not going to be a blessing because you're going to perform well. You're not going to get blessed because you're going to do everything right. In fact, Abraham, you're about to go on this journey and you're going to mess these things up real bad, real early. But I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your family because I am a good God who keeps my promises. And we learned this word covenant, which means God always does what he promises. So I can tell you, I still think this can be your best year. I still think this can be your best decade because God makes promises that he always keeps, regardless of your behavior, regardless of stuff that you've done in your own life. And so Abraham has a son named Isaac. He has some others. Complicated story, but not for today. Then Isaac has another son named Jacob. He has others. Complicated story, not for today. And then Jacob has these 12 sons that represent kind of this family and this promise that God makes. Now Jacob is one who's really suspicious with God, a little bit um, manipulative. Sometimes he thinks God's really good, right? The way that I describe him and this nation is they play the hokey pokey with God. Sometimes they give him his heart. Sometimes they take it back out. Sometimes they put it in. They shake it all about, right? Um, and so this nation starts with this guy named Jacob. And literally, in an evening, he wrestles with an angel of the Lord. Maybe Jesus himself, pre-incarnate. And in that, they have this fight of the night that Jacob's like, I want your blessing. I want your blessing. Would you please bless me? But in the night, the angel kind of touches Jacob, hit Jacob's hip. He gets all messed up. And yet, he says he's going to bless him. And then he changes his name to Israel. So this nation starts with this family, the patriarch. And so the nation has all sorts of complicated things they do. And what they keep messing up. And they keep and kind of turning their back on God. And they end up enslaved to things they turn their backs on God to. And they are turned towards whether that's all sorts of different sin, hope, leverage their future, whatever. And, uh, God continues to send these different people in to kind of lead them. You may have heard the name Moses, right? He let my people go. Really, really crazy story where God leads the Israelites out of captivity and points them to a promised land. This land that I would describe as filled with possibility. 
And God says, this is going to be your land. It's going to be filled with milk and honey. doesn't mean much to me. Maybe something to you if you're British. Maybe you put that stuff in your tea. Not real sure. But it says this land filled with possibility points to it. And he tells Moses to lead the people over in there. And he sends these two guys, Joshua and Caleb. And they go over there and go, no, we don't think it's possible. In fact, we think it's impossible. We don't think God's capable. Let's just stay put. We like our tents. We like our migrant life. And so they basically go to God. Hey, God, we understand you have a plan. We like our plan better than yours. The way we describe that's just rebellion in any category. When you know there's a plan or you know there's a path you're supposed to take, and you go, I'm going to take a different path, right? Inside us, there's just that, that rebellion. And so this nation goes, God, we like our plan better than yours. You know, we do that. Maybe we do it mm, covertly, right? You don't really do it like overtly. Like you don't say to God, I'm not going to do that. But here you go, ah, I'm not sure God's good. I'll do my own thing. Or maybe you don't think God's real. So of course you wouldn't follow his plan if you don't think he's real. That makes sense, right? So you just go, God, I don't follow my own plan. Maybe you don't say it to him you don't think he's real, but you follow your own plan. The Israelites did that. And what we see happen throughout the scriptures over and over again is God gets angry. Now, this is a new category for you. Let me help you understand that this isn't that God gets angry and beats the people over the head with a stick or lights them on fire. When we see God's anger, it's a lot like um, how your anger would be towards your adult kids, if you have them, right? You know, or maybe your teenagers. There you go. Um, we're having that all. We're having this conversation with them, and you're trying to explain to them why their behavior is not helpful for their desires or their hopes and dreams, right? So you're trying to walk it out and keep explaining over and over again why they shouldn't do what they're doing. The boyfriend, the girlfriend, whatever it is, right? Why they shouldn't do that, why they shouldn't hang out with those people. And your kid is adamant that they're on the right path. You know, you know that they're on the wrong path, right? We all know that. We know that story. And so you can keep telling them, keep telling them what ends up happening in there is there's a, a broken relationship, right? And eventually what happens for most of us, such a sad story, we buy go, okay, fine, fine. You don't mean it. You're not excited about it. But you have come to the conclusion that nothing you say or do is going to get them to change or do something differently. So you, I don't think the word acquiesce is fair, but you remove yourself from it and go, okay, do what you want to. Right? Not because you think it's going to end well for them, but because you have no other option. Right? You just sit there and explain to them over and over again. They're not going to get any clarity from that. No amount of you know, book reading, discussion is going to change that. So you just got to go, okay, have your wife. Right? So that's really what God does. In his anger, like you're angry that your kids are going to do that, and yet you know you can't stop it. You, you kind of step back and you go, okay, have your way. You know, in your hopes, let me even say this. God, would you protect them while they're there? Would you protect them while they're doing that? We all know that story. So God removes himself and goes, okay, I'm going to remove my provision. I'm going to remove my protection. I'm going to remove my security from them. And I'm going to release them over. We see in the book of Judges, and Paul clarifies this in the uh, Romans in the New Testament. It literally says that God turns people over to their desires. Okay. Go after what you want. You think that's the best plan? Go after it. Right? And it says in Judges, they literally couldn't resist these very things. But here's the thing. The things that they thought would make them feel the most worth, you know this, actually made them feel worthless. Right? Let's go back to your high school dates. Go back to those boyfriends, girlfriends, this thing that you thought was going to be the thing. Think about that bottle. Think about that pill. You thought, man, finally. Right? Skip ahead to decade. And the very thing you wish you would never have touched it, never said it, never saw it. Right? Because you get all this pain. Now... As humans, particularly as Westerners, we hate pain. So the Israelites, what we do, kind of our chief worldview, is avoid pain at all costs, right? Just avoid pain at all costs. We don't want to feel pain. We want to numb ourselves from pain. We want to escape pain. And so what happens for the Israelites is they feel pain as a result of their decisions. Not God's decisions, their decisions. Now, we don't like pain, but I just say this. Pain is a beautiful uh, clarifier for life. You know this. Pain is just 
a reminder that something's wrong. That's all it is. Pain is telling you that something is off. Something is off in your body. Something is off in your relationships. Something is off in your mind. There's something that's off, which means your antenna goes up and you go, oh, I should possibly consider something different. You start rethinking your plan. Now, by the way, the word rethink in the scriptures is actually the word repentance. Literally, this is where the Israelites go back to God and go, we should have followed your plan. We thought this was going to be a thing, but it's not a thing. And they cried out to God, don't hear me. This is so important. Every time you see this in the scriptures, every time you see this in the scriptures, every single time, you know what? Every time the Israelites cried out to God, every single time, even though they did horrendous, horrific, stupid, terrible things, right? They were defiant and disrespectful to God. Every time they cried out, God would say, no, my Savior. Now, not like this big, dying on the cross, Jesus Savior. We'll get to that. But they would send them some kind of leader to lead them. Now, when the Israelites are finally ready to go into the land of possibility, the promised land, God raised up Joshua, this great warrior king who led them into this promised land. And he would lead them into this land of possibility. So they would get there and everything was good. And as long as Joshua was there, kind of remind them, putting the bumpers on them, the guard girls going, hey, hey, guys, remember what God did for us? They would do really well. But then something happened. Their great warrior king, Joshua, Yeshua in the Hebrew, he dies. And then they forget all about God and that. And so they hop into this land where they rebel. God gets angry. They feel pain. They go, we should go back. God, could you fix? Would you? Maybe you should. And I'm so sorry, God. Would you love us again? Would you somehow save us from our predicament? And every single time, God will send salvation and leave them the possibility. So what we've been looking at is this book of Judges. Judges, right? And this book is all about all the warrior kings and deliverers that come after Joshua into this promised land. And so what we see is there's multiple judges that God would send in and rescue them. And as long as the judge was living, he was the accountability partner, he was the guide, he was the guardrails, they would live a good life. And sometimes this would last 20, 30 years. Sometimes it lasts up to 80 years. But inevitably what happens is the judge died. They lost sight of where they're going and they just get back in this pattern. Which is just our pattern, by the way, guys. Some of you are here with this whatever mess in your life and you're going, God, if you would, then I will go to church. If you would, then I would. Like this is conditional pattern, and many of you get really excited, like New Year's, God, this is my year, I'm going to do this, I'm never going to look at that, I'm never going to say that, God, this is your year, I want to give you everything I want, and then all of a sudden, you get suspicious whether or not God's good anymore, and we just go back to our old pattern, and so what we're trying to figure out is, is there a way to actually fix this pattern? Is there a way by which we can always live in this land of peace and possibility? And what we saw in the very beginning was this glimmer of hope. This dark, broken world, this light shining way off in the distance that maybe something could change about this whole cycle for the Israelites and for each of us. And we saw this um, couple hundred, hundreds and hundreds of years after this story of Judges, what ends up happening is the Judges die. Then they're going, God, give us kings. And they get kings, and it gets messy. And then God sends in these prophets to remind them. And then there's this time of just deep darkness and sadness. And they wondered, is there really God who loves us? Is there really a plan? Did God actually care about us anymore? And then there was this glimmer of hope. And you know as the Christmas story where God shows up and the angel shows up and tells Mary, this teenage girl, that she's going to birth a baby. This is going to be this immaculate conception, which is going to be a redeemer. Hold on to that word for the rest of the morning. Okay? Who would come in and redeem, buy back his people, set everything right. And he was going to save the day. Now they couldn't understand that conceptually. What does it mean that a baby would save the day? And then um, Mary was about to get married and Joseph, the husband, was like, ah, this is pretty sketchy. Not my boy, someone else's boy. Oh, sure, it's God's baby. Yeah. All sorts of complications. And so he's come up with this plan to divorce her in the quiet and just move about his life. And then he has this interaction with an angel, God's messenger. Shows up and says, no, 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 Joseph, lean in here. This is filled with possibility. Because Mary's going to have a baby, and it's going to be my son, right? Jesus, God's son. And he says, and he's going to come, you're going to name him 
Yeshua. Remember Joshua, this great warrior king. Yeshua in the Hebrew. Like, I thought his name was Jesus. Yep, that's Greek for Yeshua. Joshua is the Hebrew term. The Bible's written in Greek, so that's Jesus. You're going to name him Jesus. And this is what he says. Because, 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 because. What this guy's going to do, what this God's going to do, is he's going to save the people. Okay, good, good, good. We need saving. We need saving. Boy, do we need saving. And he's going to save the people from their sin. And they're like, wait, wait, sin? We actually want to be saved from the Roman government. Right? You want to be saved from your addiction. You want to be saved from your boss or your mother-in-law or your ex or your, you know, your pain or your bankruptcy. And what God said is that he's going to send a Savior. And what he was actually going to save us from was our biggest enemy. And our biggest enemy is our sin inside you. Inside you. So you know the church is really gravitated to this message. Particularly if you're not a church person. Oh, you know all about the church talking about people and their sin, right? Because we're going, okay, if sin's the problem, then the church is here to fix the problem. God sends the church, we fix sin, right? And by that, what I mean is all of us grab our bullhorns and go out on the street corners and tell people to stop sinning, right? Especially the big heinous the ones that are, you know, like hot topic button issues right now. Not like the, not like the uh, covert ones. Not like the amount of money you spend on Amazon on things you don't need. But it was 30% off. Yeah, you just paid 70% of something you don't need. Right? Not those guys. I'm talking about the big ones. By that, I mean the ones where they do it differently than you do it. Right? There's okay, there's the bad ones. And so the bullhorns are screaming, you stop your sinning, right? The sinning's what leads us to hell. Sinning. If you stop your sinning, you won't go to hell. If you stop your sinning, you'd have a great life, right? And so we'd spend all this time talking about people's sinning. But sinning's not actually a problem. You see, sinning, because we all do it, all of us, all sorts of ways, all the time, right? All the time, right? Sinning isn't the problem. Sinning is a symptom of the greater problem. And so when we understand sinning, what Jesus was actually coming to save us from, wasn't that, that we were sinning, is that we were sinners. Right? So this is a state of who we are. In other words, it is so deeply entrenched and written in us that there's something at the molecular and DNA level, cellular, that in us there's something so broken in us that our biggest enemy is us. And you know that. We know that. We really think about it all the time. The person who talks the worst to you is yourself. The person who messes things up the most for you is yourself. Right? Your greatest enemy is not out here, it's in here. And so how in the world do we say that's what we saw last week? We saw in the story of Samson that perhaps, 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 if there's a way to be rescued, that this judge, this rescuer, wouldn't save us from our enemy out there, but somehow come and save us from ourselves. And what we learned, Paul said it this way, he said, the very things I don't want to do, I do do, and the things that, you see, you don't think about the do do, sorry. And the things that I don't I do, do, I don't want to do, like, all this complications. Like, he didn't understand. He would set his mind to something and go, I'll never do that again. I'll never say that again. And then the next day they did it, right? You made those promises to your spouse. Right? So your spouse is thinking those right now. So you're like, oh, would you stop talking about that? Right? This is these promises. I'll never do it. And then you do it. And you don't even want to do it. So here's what we do. Here's what we do. We start, for ourselves, this is the only way we can live, is we start judging our, and grading ourselves based on our intentions. Right? It's the thought that counts. Right? Because we know we can't actually make the thoughts all happen. Right? So then it gets all sorts of broken in our relationships because we start judging ourselves on our intentions. But we don't know other people's intentions. So we only have one way to judge them, like your spouses, right? So we judge ourselves on our intentions, but we have to judge them on their actions. So you get all these broken relationships. You're going, we're all broken. We all can't fix ourselves. So what do we do? And what Paul said is, who can save this wretched man inside of him? This code, this monster that lives in us. And then finally came to this conclusion, but be to Christ Jesus. So we understand that there's a savior that comes, this rescuer that comes, not to do triage, not to put abandon on us, but to save us from our sins. 
And what we learned last week was that there, from the very beginning of time, as humans started, right, what got into us came from the very first human, the sin nature. The sin nature that dwells in you has always been there. It might not be fair, but it's true. Right? And so, what, what Jesus did is he came to save us from that nature and give us a new nature, his own nature. And Paul's argument is if one person you get us into this, the one person is supposed to get us out of it. Particularly that person's God. So one person can get us into this. How much more could God himself get us out of it? And not just get us out of it, but get us into this life he had promised. Right? So he learned this really cute little phrase. Sin's not your master. It's not your master. It's not your master. You don't have to, you don't have to obey it. When you feel like you have to look at that thing, say that thing, text that thing, you actually don't have to if you're in Jesus. You don't have to. And some of you did it this week, right? You went to the pantry, we're about to grab that donut, and you're like, sin's not my master, and I was, you're so proud, and then you ate it anyway. <laughs> some of you went to Amazon, and you're like, I'm not going to buy that, sin's not my master, and you bought it anyway. In seriousness, some of you went to that screen, opened up that computer, and your loneliness and sadness, and you go, sin's not my master, I'm looking at that. And you looked at it anyway. And the reality is this, if sin's not your master because Jesus is your Lord, you don't have to do it, but we still do it. Just so painful. It's been four weeks and we still can't fix it. So what in the world can we do? That's where you are. All of us, right? Want to fix that part of us. Don't offer this all the time. I am going to give you a beautiful bow this week. Five weeks into this. Last week of this is my year. Of how you actually do that. Okay? Yeah, lean in. I'll get to it about uh, 1.30. Okay? So, uh, <laughs> these guys are always laughing at the things that aren't jokes. And so, uh, so see, so you did it again. Um, so, I'm going to give you that bow. It's going to be worth your time. Okay? Now, one of the other things I've kind of heard in the feedback, one of the things that I've wanted to guard uh, from is some of this we struggle with personally, which is where I think you should always focus, right? Can't fix other people. Can't even fix yourself. So, I went and spent a lot of time trying to fix other people. Jesus says that work. Who you've gone for? But you told me two, week, or two weeks in that. Uh, that sinning is like the symptom, being a, like that, like which would be like a spider web, right? And then deep down, there's a spider that's spinning it. And the goal is to kill the spider. And I need my son, my daughter, my spouse to kill that spider. So can I send them that message? And can I post it on Facebook and tell people? Because if they get this, man, it'll change everything. Like, oh, I don't think it's going to go well. I don't think it's going to go well when you go tell people how they should behave or change. And it never ends well. And then you go help us go, home. but my child. They're in deep pain. And I want to help. How do I help? Right? My spouse is in deep pain. I want to help. How do I help? I can't just, you know, hold up the signs, do screaming and yelling. Is there something I can do? Yep. Sam will give you a bow on that one too. I'm telling you, this is license tactics for you. About 1.30 you'll get that. And so, good job not laughing that time. Um, and so, I'm joking, by the way. Uh, and so, here we go. I'm going to get this nice little beautiful bow. And here's how we're going to get it in the most unique way. So, the last four weeks, we've been looking at the story of the judges in the book of Judges. And we looked at kind of the national picture of the, you know, the judges, like a big macro level, the whole you know, time span of all 12 judges, and what God was doing for the nation as a whole, collectively, right? And then we got to kind of narrow the focus and see what the real problem was, which was the enemy wanted to kill, still kill, and destroy. And we saw how judges, particularly Ehud and Deborah, went in and went straight to the source, right? And then the third week, we have the national picture, kind of see the process. And then we got to actually look inside of like, what it would have been like to be a judge? So what are they feeling? What kind of insecurities do they have? And so we looked at Gideon, a really, really neat story of a guy who was a coward that God kind of comes in and goes, no, I see you as a mighty warrior. A really beautiful story. you got to go back and listen to it. And last week, we looked at the damage of just what sin really does inside of us with the story of Samson. So we've seen collectively what, how, how it affects the nation. We've seen how the judges are affected by this and how that works for them. But you know what we haven't gotten to see yet is what an individual family's experience would have been like in Israel. And this one's really, really important because that's actually what you're most focused on. 
How does this affect me and my family, right? Like, okay, that's great. We're change the world. We're going to do those things. But right now, I'm trying to keep my family intact. I'm trying to get my kids to understand who God is. I'm trying to see my adult children come back to the Lord. I'm trying to finish well, whatever it is. Right? Those are all family issues. And so today, in all of this beauty, we get to see the experience of what it would have been like for a specific family during this region. Okay? Well, what's interesting is we're not going to see it actually in the book of Judges because you got the book of Judges that tells us the whole picture. In the very next book, Ruth actually tells us the story of a family that's in the middle of this mess. And unfortunately for this family, because they're in the middle of this mess, they don't decide to go hang in and go, we're going to trust God. Right? Too much work for the long haul. Right? So instead, they're going to walk in the rebellion. So here's what that looks like. Okay? So we're going to be in Ruth chapter 1. So we'll take a few more minutes to get there. But here's what I want you to see. And this is going to be fun. It may have been a while since you've seen one of these. So it's called a felt board, okay? Back in the day, these used to be used in Sunday school classes, but here's the deal. This is like more than 30 years old now, so this thing's hip again. So we're going to start bringing it out and talking about it. And you know, there's all that hipster stuff. And let me define hipster for you just because I'll feed you and you'll find it funny. And I like a good finger if you're young and you want to appreciate this. Here's what a hipster is. It's someone who dresses like their grandfather but doesn't have his work ethic. Gaboom, okay? There you go, okay? Got it? It's not true, it's not true. There are tons of people, young, work really hard, but it's, 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 it's low-hanging fruit. Okay, so what happened uh, during this time of all this mess, the reign of these different judges, there was this dude, and his name was Elimelech. Starts with an E, Elimelech. Now, he lived in Israel. But as you know, it was complicated to live in Israel. There was this major roller coaster. Uh, the stock, stock markets were a mess. Life was very volatile there, all those kind of things. And so Elimelech did not like that. He kept waiting for God to do good things, and when God would, he's like, ah, that's not the kind of good thing I wanted for life. And so instead, Elimelech decides that he doesn't want to, no longer wants to live in Israel. He defects. He leaves, and where he goes with his wife, Naomi, is to this place called Moab. Now, for us, it wouldn't mean a lot, but it's, it's, it's terrible. And the reason we think he went to Moab is Moab had good armies. They had a strong economy, lots of good jobs, right? And so uh, Elimelech's idols are very similar to ours. Control, power, security, comfort, all those things. It was very uncomfortable <laughs> in this time, in the land of possibility, waiting, not sure, a really broken society. So he takes his wife and their two children. They're good looking. They had strong jaw lines. Okay. There they are. Uh, you can't see that far. I know it's small. We're getting a bigger one, I promise. They're coming. But um, they do look good. They have nice, nice, nice features, nice cheeks. Okay. And so um, they move over there. Now, one of the really messed up parts about this is not only they move over there and basically walking away from what would be their Israeli culture, nation, all those things. He actually, Limelech thinks about this ahead of time, and he gives these guys Canaanite or Moabite names. So he names them um, uh, Kilion and Malon. So this is really messed up. They're not Hebrew names. So these guys, they move off for comfort. You know, the reason this would have been really, really bad, take a second, uh, they would have moved to Moab and been called Moabites, and kind of the founding of that nation was under, under some really sordid, broken stuff. That's really, really bad. In fact, the way that it worked, uh, maybe many of you remember Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not sure if you do. Probably those Sodom and Gomorrah, the story in the Bible where God basically just wipes out entire culture, entire towns, entire region, right? Because what they're doing was so horrific, so damaging to one another, there was no hope left. God could see the whole tape and go, they will do nothing of any sorts of good, they will just destroy each other, right? The same way you would put a dog to sleep. When there's nothing good that was going to happen anymore for that dog, pain was the only thing left in their future, God literally wipes out a nation. And he takes this guy named Lot to call them to repentance and change, okay? So Lot tries to do that, and nothing good happens. So finally God says, look, you've got to walk away from it. 
There's nothing else to happen. Take you, take your wife, take your daughters, and you walk away from them, right? And so Lot and his wife and daughters, they're fleeing the city. God says, you can't even look back. Look forward, go. And when all that mess happens, Lot's wife looks back and it says she turns into a pillar of salt. Really, really messy story and very tragic. Now, what I want you to understand is this is not folklore, myth, or legend. These are real people. This is a real broken story. So what's left is you got Lot and his girls, okay? Now, one thing you gotta understand about Jewish culture, uh, particularly then, or just, and you, you pick up on this, and all the cultures around there, um, so misogynistic that females really had a specific value, which was the nurture children that they make, right? So at the base level, um, a girl, when she was born, understood that her value, her identity, and all her hopes and dreams had to do with her ability to be a mother, right? And so from a very early age, she's being shaped for this. Be a mom, be a mom, be a mom, be a mom. That was it. That was, that was all. So she's dreaming about the husband, the kids, what that family life looked like. And they valued family immensely. Not wealth, not prosperity, but family and legacy. So imagine this. These three girls, mom just died, devastating, in their grief. And they see this huge destruction happen throughout the whole, in the whole nation, right? And, you know, this is like one of those movies, uh, Blast of the Past, have you seen it? That kind of idea where people um, think there's a bomb, big bomb, nuclear bomb that's going to wipe out everything, right? Kind of like part of the Cold War, anger, fear, anxiety, all that stuff. And so in this type of movies, they believe there's a bomb and they go into the bomb shelter. And then they come out and they see nothing, just ruins, right? So their assumption is that they're the only people left, right? This would have been their assumption. That it happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, but it probably happened everywhere. So real people, real story. These girls have nobody but their father. But remember, the only thing that they think is of value to them, their only hopes and dreams have to do with their ability to have children and raise children. So they do a sordid, broken thing. They help get daddy, who's really, really filled with anxiety, doesn't have very good coping mechanisms, drink a whole bunch to the point where he gets absurdly intoxicated, and they sleep with him. And by sleep with him, I don't mean they lay next to each other and kept each other warm, right? And as a result, one of these daughters has a little boy from her dad named Moab. Now this is confusing, right? So Moab's like, uh, daddy, granddaddy? Is that me? This is all sorts of broken, right? All sorts of problems. Hey, go to your grandfather. Do you mean my dad or grandfather? Both. Yes, go. Okay, let's And this whole family lineage comes from this broken ancestral thing. And so the Jews would have been whispering about this. It's been a huge deal. So the fact that this guy would take his family to be subjected to this sort of gross, bad, sinning culture, right? And so they move, walk away from the one true God, and they find themselves in this place. And he's even given them those names. Not only does he give them those names, they have children over here, right? So these two, or they have kids, they, their children get married over here. So you got these two guys, here we go. They get married, one of them gets married to Orpah, um, one of them gets married to Ruth. And so now they have this kind of international, multicultural family. And now they're established. Uh, Elimelech has this nice little family, all of the stuff guarded. He's got a good life, following all those kind of things. And he's finally got, gets to the place. He's like, ah, oh, finally I can eat, drink, and be merry. I got comfort. I got culture. I got everything. I got security. I got provision. But we know, we know. That security, provision, uh, control, they're just illusions, right? right? We all know it. We all know. And this is, I'm not, no fear mongering, but we know that our 401ks are not as secure as we'd like to think they are. 
Right? We understand there's all sorts of complications in our world, and everything can change in a matter of moments. Right? Not just, not just scary, but they're just illusions. Well, um, it's an illusion for these guys. So the very thing that he was worshiping, control, power, security, comfort, he actually was taken away from because of Limelech. And the two boys, that, well, one died already. You know? uh, they're dead. They're dead, right? And so what's left is these three ladies, old Naomi and her two daughter-in-law. Now, again, this is not folklore, myth, or legend. These are real people. And this is real pain. So imagine this for Naomi. What has happened when Elimelech moves over there and he thinks, finally, my nation, I got everything I want in this new world with my, granddaughter, my daughters, my daughter-in-law, my sons. And so he sells all his property back from Israel. So he has nothing other than just this new Moabite culture. And then he dies with just the three of them. So Naomi has nothing. She's old. She's Jewish. And she's not sure what to do. So she thinks the only possibility is perhaps she could go back to Israel. And at least make some connections. So she didn't have any land over there. She has nothing. But it's better than the possibility of just staying here in this mess. And, you know, typically one of the things that would happen in this kind of culture, really, really neat, is there's something called leveret marriage. Um, and so what leveret marriage was, it was when one of the daughters or one of the sons died and that was married, the, 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 the in-laws, the parents, would provide that daughter with another son. So that this girl could still have children, the family's legacy could continue. So if, one, if they had other children, other sons, they would have given them a marriage. But the problem is, these are the only two kids Naomi had. So she lost everything. Right? You know the story. Some of you followed the news last Sunday with Kobe Bryant. Devastating. Right? And you hear the story, this great basketball player seems to make a really amazing turn in his life, dies, and you're really, really sad. But then you got the second set of news. Right? That perhaps... Kobe's daughter was with him. And now immediately you go to Kobe's wife, Vanessa, and you think about her and go, could you imagine losing a husband and a child in the pain? So you got Naomi, who's really mourning the loss of her sons and her husband, and yet has no idea what the future looks like. So her best solution is to go back to Israel. Now this isn't a good solution to these women, because they're Moabites. They, wouldn't, they have been considered half-breeds and less than a person to the Israeli culture. The best hope they would have had in Israel would be is trafficked in slavery. So there is no good hope here. So Naomi's going to come up with this plan. Hey, you girls stay. This is devastating. This is all she has left. I'm going to go back to Israel. I just want to read to you how this plays out. This is Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons. So I'm too old to have it. So it's just too late. And I can't provide to you the sons to marry you. Would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you. Watch this. Because the Lord has turned against me. You see? God turns them over to their own desires. Directs their life. They feel pain. And at this point, Naomi thinks that God is actually causing this. Like whipping her. That's not what happens here. Life happens without provision and protection. But so she is in a deep place of pain. So she's saying, you got to go. Right? Verse 14. At this point, they wept aloud. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah goes, right? Orpah's going, okay, I guess I've got no other option. This isn't like, oh, a cute story. This is devastating. These are real people. And so here we have just Naomi, the Israelite, and Ruth, the Moabite. The Moabite. You can see throughout the scripture that they continue to remind you of who she is in her sordid past, the Moabite. Uh, verse 15, look, said Naomi. Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, 
Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. This is really, you know the scripture, maybe if you've been to a wedding, you've heard it. And Ruth makes this statement to her mother-in-law. This is what she says. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. So she goes, no, 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 Naomi, I'm not leaving you. No, this is, there's some danger in this. But where you go, I'm going with you. Where you stay, I'm going to stay with you. And your God will be my God. And your people will be my people. Wait, 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 wait. That's not good for you, Ruth. Because if they're your people, you're in big trouble. Because they're going to disrespect you. You're going to get abused. You're going to be beaten. This will not work out well for you. And your God, this is kind of like God. She thinks all gods are kind of interchangeable. Right? We have that in our culture now. This idea that, yeah, every God's kind of the same. Everyone you pray for, they're all the same God. And I'm like, no, God's Jesus. Jesus makes a way for us. That's who we pray to, work through, to get back to God. So get some complications there. But this isn't that. This isn't like she just sees them all as kind of like generic gods. If so, she would use the word Elohim here. Just a kind of more generic term for God. Still a respectful one, but a more generic. She uses the word Yahweh, the self-sustaining, the self-producing, you know, the self-glorifying God, Yahweh. So she is calling God who he is. I don't know why she could see him as that. I would guess through Naomi's life, even in her pain, but Naomi's got her own problems here. So she goes, no, you're God, will be my God. And then continues, verse 16, or verse 17. And this is what's so interesting. She not only says that, then she even says this. Because here's the complicated part. She goes, where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even set, I mean even death, separates you and me. So she, you know, usually when you think about immigrant stories, one of the things that immigrant stories are usually filled with is hope and possibility, right? Leaving a terrible land or terrible situation in hopes of coming into a new one. So I think we have to have deep empathy deep empathy for people who are coming into this country from other places because they are coming out of deep pain and sorrow. And I understand there's some other situations that are, could you imagine leaving everything and giving up everything regardless of their religious beliefs? So could you imagine that? And walk this and usually when, when you see this migrant thing happen, when this immigrant thing happen, it's always filled with a hope of a possibility in the future, right? This has got to be better than what I'm coming from, right? But this isn't how Ruth sees this. She literally goes, where you die, I will die. So she's like going, hey, this is going to be a good land for us, Naomi. She's going, no, no, I'm going to be with you. And where you die, I'll die too. This isn't one filled with hope and possibility. And then she says, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you. In other words, hey, God, I, I, I'm going to do this, and I'm making this commitment, and I'm making this promise and this covenant, regardless of the situation, regardless of what we find in Israel, I'm going there anyway. Now watch what happens next. Verse 18, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Okay. Color stop. So the two women went on until they came to, I want you to pay uh, to that attention to that word, Bethlehem. They're like, yeah, yeah, I've heard that term before. Yep, that's where Jesus was born. Really, really neat part of the story. I want you to see the nuanced complications of, of how stories intermingle and how beautiful God is in orchestrating this whole story. The reason that Jesus is born in this town is the result of the story, believe it or not. And so they're going to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can't this be Naomi? So they come in and people recognize her. She looks a little old, uh, older, a little bit more run ragged, but they remember her. Because that name Naomi, it means pleasant. So this was a girl who brought joy and pleasantries everywhere she went. You know those people that just light up the room? That was Naomi. So she comes in and they're going, is this Naomi? Naomi's back. She, Elimelech took her away. Maybe she's back. Hey, it's good to see you. So she's got cousins, all these different things. Hey, it's good to see you. Is this Naomi? I want you to watch her response. Don't call me Naomi, she told him. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. This is a girl in deep pain. And I just would just want to point out, maybe you're in that same pain. Maybe you think it's God's fault. That's okay. He can handle it. He's not insecure. He's not, he's not worried that you're going to mess up his uh, reputation. He's okay here. 
But you see this girl, she's in deep pain and bitter. She's like, no, there's no pleasantness. There's no joy in me. And maybe that's where you are. It's okay. So don't stay there. Let me show you how you can get out of that. Really, really, going to give you a bow as well. So it's really neat. So in this moment, there's just some bitterness and deep pain. And these are real people. And this is real pain. I hope you can have some compassion and empathy towards it. I went away, fool. This is Naomi still speaking. But the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Because the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Remember, no, no, God just removed this provision and protection, but that's not her experience here. And she's allowed to have her experience. She's allowed to have her feelings. And so she is a miserable, broken person. And rightfully so. She has nothing. She's old. She's lost everything, lost her sons. She has no will to live. And we have Ruth, who's now in this new place. And can you imagine the complications of that? So all we have here is Ruth and Naomi. Here they are. They're back in Bethlehem. And, um, some really interesting things I just want you to know about in terms of kind of... Uh, Constitution is probably the wrong word, but I think it works in terms of how um, the Israeli nation was formed and kind of the things that guided it. And um, one of the problems was uh, they were broken people like we are. And debt was just something that they just accumulated. Like, you, you got this. You look at your credit card bills, and we don't, like, we don't want to talk about them. You don't want to open up the statements. It creates all sorts of anxiety. I don't want you to have anxiety right now. But we just understand the progress of how debt just accumulates, right? And how we keep thinking of the next thing that we can pay off, or leverage nail for nail, fix it for later. And what we know is it's like this big snowball. And so what happened in Israeli culture and the Israelites is what would, they would do is they would leverage their land and future promise of their land for current, you know, uh, solutions. So they need to pay for something, they need to get food, they go, here's our land, you can have it for whatever it is, we'll, we'll rent it to you, we'll lease it to you, we'll sell it to you. And so land became kind of, it was the, the place for livelihood and longevity for the Israeli nation, for each family in there. And so what happened is these folks who would leverage their land for security, leverage their future for the present, would end up in a lot of debt and uh, a lot of times lose their land. So what God did, and size this like national Israeli kind of approach, would uh, every 50 years there was this thing that was established called Jubilee. Okay? Jubilee was this big moment where everything was set back right the way it was supposed to be in terms of the land. So every 50 years, everybody would get the land back for their family. Just like that. Snap fingers, celebrate. God is good. God restores. God redeems. That word means to buy back and puts everything back in order. <laughs> every 50 years that would happen. Every 50 years. Right? God's basically saying, hey, you're going to wreck your life in 50 years, right? Or someone in your family is. And so it just was established, kind of get everything back. Now, we can assume by this story that that's nowhere to be had. Maybe it just happened. It'll be a long time before it happens again. So that doesn't seem like a really good option for Naomi and Ruth to have any kind of um, kind of livelihood to write for them. No. Another option was this thing called a kinsman or a redeemer. And so what could happen is if a family member that's close to the family could actually go back and buy the land back for the family. Buy the land back for the family. And so they would have to give up their own money to buy the land and reestablish it for the family. But they'd have to have a connection to the family. Well, because Naomi's old, Ruth doesn't have any connection because she's a Moabite. That seems like it's not likely either. So those don't seem like really good options there. But another thing that was kind of built into the system was something called gleaning. Really, really neat thing. Where basically, for the impoverished, this was their welfare. Okay? And so what would happen is when people, um, the Jews would be taking care of their land and take care of their land, uh, they would be harvesting it, but they kind of had to do two things. Around the edges, like around the edge, right, in the margins, they would, they would not be allowed to harvest those, that part of it. 
you know, not five, ten percent of the actual land, maybe a little bit less. And what that stuff was kind of set apart, set aside for, was for the impoverished. They could go and they could pick up that, at least have enough food to eat for the day. And anything that dropped out of the bags that was left overnight, they'd be able to pick that up as well. So Naomi says to Ruth, hey, just to survive the good day today, I think our best option, she's old, she can't do it, is for you to clean. That means you go out into the field and you go pick up enough food for you to eat. Which is a great that they can eat, but this is a really dangerous story. She's a Moabite. And the Jews who are working land, large, large plots of land, would have lots of people working on it. They would have mistreated Naomi. They would have seen her as a, a means to their pleasure, right? The real reality for Moabite women is they would have been trafficked sexually. And so Ruth is going to go into this place with the real likelihood of her getting abused and probably enslaved. But it's the only hope they have. Like, it's really easy for us to read. Oh, that's... But for her, this is significant. This, this is a scary place for her to go. But she goes to this land to do that. Now, this land that she goes to is this big kind of uh, plot of land. And a guy named Boaz owns it. Okay? Really, really neat part of that. So Boaz owns it. So she goes and she's going to glean. Now, Boaz notices her. Notices that she's a different culture, different ethnicity, different nationality. She's a Moabite. And he goes to her and goes, this isn't safe for you. Why are you here? And she explains, hey, this is the only hope I have. I don't know how else we're going to eat today. That's how I do this. And he goes, no, 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 we're not doing this. And he says, hey, look, I've talked to all my men, 50, 100 of them that work the, the farm, and told them that they cannot touch you. I'm giving you my protection. She has to have a protection provision. He is giving her his protection and his provision. He goes, so look, you're protected. If they touch you, that harm will be done to them. Like they, they know better. That you have my protection. But he, he also said, hey, there's about 50 women who also work the same. What I want you to do is just jump in with them. And I want you to start harvesting the, you know, the crop alongside. Put it in your own bags, put it in your own baskets. But don't bring it to the storehouse. Don't bring it in. What I want you to do is I want you to take it back to your mother-in-law for you to have. Therefore, you can eat it, and now you can create some revenue. Right? So this is a hand up. And this is the real opportunity for her finally to get out of this impoverished place. And so she goes back, and she tells Naomi all about this. Right? What a great story. Finally, there's some hope for her. And Naomi's like, what? Like that. So she says, she's like, you said his name was Boaz? And she's like, yeah, his name's Boaz. She's like, you're not going to believe this girl. And she's like, what? Like that right there. And, and she says, here's the thing about Boaz. He's one of Elimelech's relatives. Ruth, he could be our kinsman redeemer. He has the way to get our land back. But there's a catch. I'm too old to marry him. So it can't be me. You're not too old. But you're a Moabite. So in order for this to happen, we're going to have someone in the Lemelite's lineage in the family to be there. And it can't just be you. It's going to have to be a child of yours. So he would have to agree to this. Then he'd have to marry you. Then he'd have to have a baby with you. And then he couldn't even have the, that baby couldn't even have his last name. He'd have to be in the lineage of the Lemelite. So he'd have to make you a, a full owner of all of his properties. He'd have to marry you. And he'd have to have a kid with you. So he'd have to keep my, my dead husband's name. So stretch. But maybe it's a possibility. So guess what happens? She gets her hair all fixed up, and she goes back. And it's kind of interesting, weird story. If you go back and read it, it's only four chapters. Really, you should read this. And so he's working on the wheat in the threshing room floor, but it's also the place he's going to end up sleeping that night. He's working there, and all of a sudden, Ruth comes in. She's all pretty, and she lays at his feet at bedtime. And now hear me, hear me. I want to make sure you get this. This is not salacious. This is not what you imagine, that there's some kind of temptation offer here. This is sincere and respectful. Like this, is a, this isn't what you would think it would be. It sounds like it's laying on the floor. It like just seems off the floor, but it's not those things. This isn't, let me get the red lipstick on. That's not that thing. Let me wear the right lingerie. None of that stuff. She literally lays at his feet, and he goes, who is this? And she goes, 
and Ruth, the Moabite. And then she asks him this weird thing, would you cover me with your robe? Again, not salacious. What she's saying is, will you marry me? Will you marry me? Right? So she goes, can I ask you something crazy? And he goes, yes. And she says, will you marry me? And then he goes, can I say something even crazier? <laughs> if you've ever seen Frozen, that's how that works out there. It doesn't go well for them, right? So there's this moment. They go, yes, yes, they're going to get married. Woohoo! Mm. But there's a catch. You see, while Boaz is a potential gentleman, uh, a kinsman redeemer, there's this other guy. He's a little closer to the family with Elimelech. So the only way by which Boaz gets his opportunity is if he decides he doesn't want to redeem it. So, that we pick up in Ruth chapter 4. He goes, well, I'll talk to this guy and let's see what happens. Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Here's what it says. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. So they're over here. Boaz is now here. Our, our guardian redeemer and Boaz, here they are. They're there, right? And came along. And he says, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders. Okay, So he grabbed some men, godly men, from the town of Bethlehem and brings them along and says, hey, hey, can y'all sit in on this as well, right? I took ten of the elders and said, sit here. And they did so what? This what, right? Then he said to the guardian, or kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to her relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. Okay? You can have this land. It's going to be a good price. Right? Get back into your family line. All those kind of things. You can do it. Ah, but there's a catch. But if you'll not, tell me so. So I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you. But I'm the next in line. His response. Be terrible. He goes, I'll redeem it. And it's like, oh. Right? I'll redeem it, he said. <laughs> but then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, dun, 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 right? <laughs> the dead man's widow. You, you see this? Like you feel the movie, right? In order to maintain the name of the dead and his property. So you get it. But that's not all, Johnny. Tell us about door number one. Open the door. It's the Moabite, right? You see this, right? And then he says, and this is the gardener redeemer said, then I can't redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. Not just the Moabite. Not just in giving my child her name, their name. You redeem it yourself. I can't do it. So he turns his back on. Now what's about to happen here is the strangest thing. Not really important for the story, but I can't not tell you it, right? So you see a parenthetical. Now in earlier times in Israel, uh, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off a sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing the transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removes one of the sandals. Right? This is just strange. And so you go, where does this come from? Not positive, but it looks like this comes from earlier time in um, Israel culture and history where a lot of times men would divorce their spouses. Right? Now, in this culture, this is devastating. Because a wife's livelihood was based on her husband. Right? And so when a man would find a younger model, whatever it is, whatever the broken part of that is, he would turn his back and he would get a divorce. But what concluded that divorce was she would give, he would give her 
his sandal, and he, she would slap him across the face. That's not true, but she should. And, um, but what she would do, I'll feed you, really. She'd spit in his face. That's true, right? And then he would have to walk through the village from the place, courthouse, whatever it is, and he'd walk with just one sandal on, you know, like this. And it was actually a picture to show kind of some shame in this, that he had turned his back on his responsibility. So when this guy, who should, could have redeemed, could have cared for uh, Ruth the Moabite, and could have made this right, he goes, nope, not interested, takes off his sandal, hands it to him, walks out of there, kind of slides his feet, right? And that's where he gets the story. So that's what happens there. And now watch what it says. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth, oh, the Moabite, um, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with this property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. So we're going we're to clean this up. The name's going to be restored. It's going to be redeemed. And at that moment, hear me. At that moment, Ruth gets all of his riches. Gets access to everything. Everything. She gets the land. She gets his land. She has made an equal heir, heir to all that stuff. In that one moment, right? So this is very dangerous. Uh, Boaz does all the work in just that moment. That sandal. That statement. That purpose. Uh, so Boaz gives up more of himself. Takes on all this whole sacrifice, and he becomes the redeemer, the, the kinsman redeemer, meaning that which bought back the land, that which bought back the family, that which made everything that was wrong set back right in that moment. And watch what happens then. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We're witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, that's Jacob's wives, that, created the, that had the sons that created the 12 tribes, who together built up the family of Israel. So we're going, the family is being restored here. This is the family being restored here. May your standing in Ephrathah and, uh, and, and, be, uh, and be famous. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. That's the same place, just two different names for it. And so he's saying, may you always be known in this town. May this town be marked for redemption. You hear that? May this be the place where redemption happens. May this be the place. you got to see this. Like, this is a beautiful story written over thousands of years, right? This is not coincidence. These are real stories. Even Jewish stories go, oh, that doesn't mean anything. No, it does. It's establishing something even greater later. And so that's what happened. But it gets even better. Watch what they say next. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. What? What are we talking about here? This is talking about Ruth Naomi. Aha, this is really, really interesting. Told you about that leper marriage. Remember where there was a husband and who had died and they would get one of the brothers or sisters? Well, long before, a couple generations back, there was this guy named Judah. Okay, Judah was one of Jacob's 12 sons. In fact, that's why we, it's from him that we get the name Jude. Okay, so Judah. And Judah had these boys. And one of his boys married this girl named Tamar. Okay? So Tamar gets married to one of his boys, and the boy dies. Really mistreats her. Remember, her goal, have a family, establish a family, birth a baby. And so what happens next is Judah, because of leverage marriage, gives Tamar the next boy. Now, he mistreats her and makes sure, not, makes sure she doesn't get pregnant. And does all sorts of stuff to the point where the Lord takes him out of his misery. He dies. And Judah's going, hey, you married two of my boys, and they both died. I just know why I'm giving you my third. Right? So she's devastated. How is she going to have a family? Like all the other stories. How is this going to come to be? Well, she knows something about Judah. He has some certain appetites, particularly for women. And one of the things that he engaged in was prostitution. So she has this crazy, yet sordid, yet broken plan. That she dresses up like a prostitute, waits out on the corner, street, whatever it is, for Judah to come by, disguise herself, and sleeps with her father-in-law. And she gets pregnant. 
And then Judah finds out she's pregnant. Doesn't know why she's pregnant. Says, we got to kill her. And she goes, do you remember about 9 o'clock a couple of Friday nights ago? That was me. And he's like, oh, no, we can't go yet. Come on over here, sweetie. Right? And they have a baby. This is so crazy. He has a baby with his daughter-in-law whose name is Perez. So now we have Perez. He's a nice-looking boy. And Perez goes up to be a man. Perez has a kid. Who has a kid? Who has a kid? Who has Boaz? Boaz is Perez's great-great-grandson. You see, this is so broken. I just would say, man, if you're like, I don't understand all the stories. God can never use it. If you don't know my family, I'm like, listen, Jesus has a lot of broken branches on his family tree. Right? Prostitution, incest, you name it. In the craziest way, so they voice, they're going, hey, you know how God used that to bless a family and bring Perez? May God use this same story to bring another blessing. But that's not all. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the, the Hebrew word there is yada, yada, yada. I love that. There you go. It's not that many yada, yada, but it's enough that it's funny. When he made love to her, yada, 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 the Lord enabled her to conceive. Wish I could spend some time on what conception really looks like in terms of this supernatural act. We'll talk about it in the Overtime Podcast on Tuesday. Enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Now watch this. So baby shows up. Right? You got Boaz, you got Ruth, and you got a baby. So... Ruth has this baby, and she decides to go over and talk to Naomi. Sorry, Naomi, I'll be careful with you. You're old. <laughs> About this baby. Now watch what she says. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. Wait. Ruth got this redeemer. And so did Naomi. And somehow this baby is pointing to some kind of redeemer. It's like, you're a baby. You can't marry him. Right? And it says this. May he become famous through Israel. Oh, wealthy. Here we are thousands of years later reading about him. So, see this picture and you go, well, who's the redeemer for Naomi? Who's the redeemer? Well, this is where it gets complicated. There's actually three redeemers we see. First one, really, really simple. Let me get this. is Boaz. He buys Naomi's land back. He reestablishes Elimelech's family. He sets the family back right. Sets the family back right. He puts it back in order, right? Puts it back in order. Really important. It's God's will. Put it back in order. So we see Boaz, he, he's the redeemer. He gives up his property. He makes them heirs to his, his stuff. He does all the work for it, right? So the first one, that's really simple. But this book isn't called the book of Boaz. It's called the book of Ruth. You see, Ruth is also a redeemer here. Because you know what she does? She leaves her land. She walks away from her property, her comfort, and goes to this foreign land where she's mistreated, whispered about, and broken. And that's one really, really, really important. This, this relationship, I told you I'd give you a, kind of a bow. Here's the bow, okay? You get two, but here's, here's the first one. This whole story is not because of some beautiful, um, you know, book writing or, you know, narrative or prose. It's not that, right? What changes this whole story? Ready for this? A friendship. A friendship. A dip. Not like, and here's what you gotta hear. Some great sermon might inspire you. Maybe you'll get it to 45 minutes and it'll be really, really pithy and concise and succinct. You'll go, that's it. My life's gonna change. Nope, it won't. Maybe some song where you sing, you get the goosebumps or chill bumps going, that's it. This is gonna finally change me. Nope, it won't. It might inspire you, it might direct you to change. But real life change happens is in friendship. Like you're going, I can't do this. I can't do the right thing all by myself. You're right, you can't. Naomi was not going to do well on her own. 
But because she had a friend, she could lean in along. Like, I can't always tell sin. It's not my master. It's not my master. But it just gets hard. You're right. It's really hard. And you cannot do it alone. Right? The scriptures, when God established human beings, he made Adam. And then he says the first negative thing you see in the scriptures. You know what he says? It's not good for man, humans, humankind to be alone. And then he creates a friend. Right? You really want to understand the gospel. You really want to figure it out. You really want to have a life that helps that. There is only one place you can find it, and it's in friendship. Just friendship. Like, this is so silly and yet so perfect. Yes, it's all about friendship. It's all about leaning in for the long run. You go, what does that friendship look like? Oh, Ruth is really good to tell us. She says this, where you go, I'll go. And where you stay, I'll stay. You see that friendship that say, I'll give you the right thing to do. I'll pay your bill. I'll fix your roof. It just says, where you're going to be, I'm going to be with you. Friendship is just all about presence, guys. That's it. Like we, we talk about all this philosophical stuff, but at the base level, it is all about presence. By the way, God meant so, this so much that he literally stepped down his presence as Emmanuel with us. This whole thing only works in friendship. So you really, really want to get over that hump. you got to have some friends that help you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Not only do you have to have friendships with you are present, is that you're pointing to the same God, who's Jesus. Right? You really want to get there. This is the only way. You're looking for a silver bullet. This is your silver bullet, but it lasts a lifetime. By the way, I told you, well, what do you do for your, your, your husband, your child, who doesn't understand they've got to deal with sin? Be their friend. Where they go, you go. Where they stay, you stay. Regardless if you disagree with them, you love them. And you're their friend. One other thing I'll point out here, something really interesting about Ruth and Naomi's friendship. They're from different cultures, had different skin colors, different nationalities, and different generations. How many of your friends have the same skin color, same nationality, and are from the exact same era that you are? Right? There's something beautiful about this. The way about friendships happen is they... they they bridge all those barriers in our world. And that's why I love this church and want you to be a part of it. And why I think it needs to be more multicultural. By the way, I'm not saying multicolored. That's a really important part. But here's the problem for us. Much of us white folks, we are all for the multicolored, not quite as interested in the multicultural. You follow me? I'm not sure we want to give up our music style or our 90-minute service or 80-minute service. There's some things we still got to work out, but there's something in the church where we have to figure this out together. And so I'm just saying, you really want to get this figured out. The only way you're going to do it is with friends. You're going, well, I don't know how to do that. And we'll feed you here. On the back of that bulletin, there's literally a spot that you can just mark. I just want to make some friends. I kid you not. On the back of your bulletin, you can just mark that. And our staff will follow up with you this week and go, hey, here's some really good ways to make friends. Find some ways to serve together. So you should probably get in a group. Right. And we're not asking for crazy things. We're not asking you to move to another nation that's going to, you know, oppress you and beat you. We're just saying, hey, this is a really good way to just jump into this conversation. So if you mark it, we'll follow up with you. But that's just the second redeemer. And even that one's impossible without the third redeemer. Watch what it says next as we finish up. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, for this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has now given birth. Loves you and is better than seven sons. Seven is perfect, and men were looked at the, as the solution to these things. But she's saying, this is better than your wildest dreams. This is better than your perfect dreams happening. This is better than that. And then Naomi took the child in her arms. So Naomi grabs the child and cared for him. Cared for him. Watch what it says. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. Watch this. He was the father of Jesse. He was the father of David. So what he's saying here is, hey, 
We're about to establish a kingdom again. And what's going to happen is this little baby, his mom's son, named Obed, his son named Jesse, his son named David, and that David is going to be the king of Israel. And for thousands of years, we're going to be talking about this King David. And where the, but they're really going to get it right. Is hundreds and hundreds of years later, they're going to find out that this King David and this lineage was going to become a real kinsman redeemer. And that redeemer is Jesus. Through who this lineage is, like Ruth, he was going to leave his country and his homeland, step out of heaven, be abused, mistreated, and be a friend of ours. Step in us and where we are, he goes with us. And like Boaz, he was going to pay the price we couldn't pay. He was going to pay all of our debt and give us his righteousness and give us his inheritance. And he's going to do that. And what he's going to do that is he's going to establish the original plan of the family with Adam and Eve. I don't know what Adam got us into. I'm going to get us out of it. He actually brings true redemption. That's the story. You know what's crazy? He even tells us, hey, when I do this, I'm not doing it as just a savior. And you're my servant. I am doing it as your friend. And then he sits down and he has this last conversation before he's about to be brutally murdered. Pay him and our sin. And then come back to life and he just invites his friends to the table and gives him this beautiful story of how he does that. And I want you to get that story today as we kind of wrap up. So Pastor Gary's going to come remind us of that last supper, which gives us communion, friendship, unity with the God of the universe. So Gary, would you walk us through communion together? Amen. So I'd like to invite the um, communion servers and the ushers to come at this time and uh, go ahead and take your positions. And today, as you come up for communion, you'll have a chance to come to one of the stations and simply take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and eat it. Um, if you would prefer gluten-free today, we have a gluten-free station, which is on your left, and would invite you to that as well. So Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, but rather I call you friends. And part of what he was saying there was that I am going to actually invite you to do life with me. I'm going to walk with you through life like a friend does. And so today, um, as we're here, we're invited into that kind of friendship with God. And, and we know that we've got a problem because the reality is that we're all broken. And even as we heard about, you know, this broken Israelite family tree, well, we're a part of that family tree and we're all broken also. In fact, you know, we drive by the sign each day that says everyone's welcome, nobody's perfect, Anything is possible. And it's that reminder that um, we know we struggle in life, but everything is possible because of who God is and what God brings to bear in our lives. So we realize that we can't somehow fix ourselves. Um, we need a redeemer. We need someone who can actually do that for us. And so Christ comes and he invites us into this relationship where he says, when you come to this table, um, you come believing. When you come to this table, you come investing yourself in the fact that I'm the one who can break all that cycle of sin in your life. I'm the one who actually meets you here. I'm the one who actually redeems you, forgives you. I'm the one who gives you new life. So today, this table is here, and you're invited to come. Let me remind you of the words of the, the story. I think they're important because they, in them we find out who we are and who God is. It was on the night that he was betrayed, and Jesus was with his, um, his disciples in an upper room. And after they'd had supper together, he took another loaf of bread, and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it. And he said to them, take, it, take this bread and eat it. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body, which is broken for you. 
And then in the same way, he also took another cup, and he gave thanks to God for it. And he said to them, this is the new covenant, which is poured out in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. And he passed it to them, and he said, take and drink this, and do this also in remembrance of me. These are God's gifts for us, the bread, the cup, the reminder that we have a God who redeems, who loves, um, who sacrifices for us so that we can have new life. Let's pray together. So God, we give you thanks that um, you're not a God who just sort of idly stands by and watches what's happening, but rather you were right in the mix of everything. From the very creation of the world, knowing exactly what your plan would be and how you would bring about redemption and new life for all of us. And so God, I pray today that as we come to this table, that we would meet you, um, that we would understand in a new way your love and your grace and your forgiveness. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The table is set. You're invited to come.
your face I see my pain no more my fear will cease I bow my life I fix my eyes on Christ my King I bow my life I fix my eyes on Christ my King Hope has a name His name is Jesus my Savior's cross has set the sinner free Hope has a name His name is Jesus Oh Christ be a lot of fun stories, a lot of crazy ones, uh, some stuff I can't tell out loud. But when I think about the stories and the adventures and the experiences, the, the real important ones that just kind of have an imprint on my life, almost all of them start in the craziest way with this statement, I'll do it if you do it. Right? Just I'll do it if you do it. There's just something beautiful about doing something alongside other people, right? And, so man, could you imagine 2020 being a year that you get to do that with other people and then add the trifecta of that? of actually having God himself make himself available to you as a friend. And that's what the Holy Spirit is. And you're going, oh, I'm not sure I understand that. You, me, and, and me, you, and the Holy Spirit. And if that's confusing to you, here's the thing I want you to know, that the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal power, but a powerful person. And for the next four or five weeks, come back starting next week, and we'll talk all about that Holy Spirit and how God makes himself available to you. That's it. You guys have a great rest of your week. I want to pray to someone right here on my right. If you were here, love the opportunity to pray with you. And if not, we'll see you on Wednesday night for dinner.